Hosts Elle and Miriam are two Black homeschooling moms embarking on a self-defining journey. Listen in on conversations that will encourage you to be your authentic self while uplifting your spirit and motivating your inherent potential. They're defining what culture is for their families and want you to do the same. Bring your children along too so they can meet the cleverly cultured kids. They're all for teaching the babies while they're young, adapting to the challenges of parenting, homeschooling, and being willing to learn the lessons that the children have to offer. It's all about uplifting one another and reclaiming your innate greatness. Welcome, welcome. Welcome everyone to the Cleverly Changing Show. We are super excited to be back with another amazing guest. I am your host, Elle Cole. I am a mom of twins. I have two daughters who are now 15. I can't believe I have teenagers. And today our special guest is Brittany. She is an educator, a reading specialist, and the author of Etymology Rules, Back to Basics. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on to the Cleverly Changing podcast. I am super excited to hear you talk about reading and just giving our readers a, a bit of insight on how to help their children read better. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited to talk about a topic that I am very passionate about. Awesome, awesome. So let me just tell you, when my kids were little, they loved to read. And it was what I found, I started homeschooling my kids and it was what I found that we excelled at because I was very animated. And it seems like if you can bring stories to life, kids will love it. So I want us to dive right in. Can you share with our listeners your inspiration behind creating etymology rules back to the basics and the driving force behind your passion for improving literacy skills? Sure. So I recall as a child being an avid reader, um, I just would sit and read and read and read pretty voraciously. I also enjoyed writing. So I know that um, you know, things that are centered around literacy was, those are my strengths. Um, I also recognize the importance of literacy, not just because I enjoy uh, being creative with words, but also just to access anything that I want to do in this world. I know that I have to have literacy skills. So, you know, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, you have to read. If I wanted to be a doctor, I have to read. Engineer. I mean, whatever it is you want to do, you have to read. Um, and like I said, that, that came pretty easily to me. Um, I realized my senior year of college, I did not want to be a lawyer anymore. So um, I just had an epiphany. I wanted to become an educator. And I went back to school. Um, I eventually went back to school and studied special education. And I worked with a lot of special needs students um, in a local youth detention center. And I found that uh, I wanted to teach history, but a good number of the students struggled with reading. 
And so, you know, I'm like, well, we can't even read these history texts to learn something I enjoy um, and that is necessary for you all if we don't have the foundational literacy skills. So that's what put me on the path towards wanting to be a reading specialist instead of a history teacher, instead of a lawyer. So kind of diverged. Um, and yes, I, I just, I have found that unlocking students' literacy skills has been really rewarding for myself, but also seeing them um, just blossom once they develop those skills. So I have a question. I know that we are heading out of the pandemic and life is changing for us. But during the pandemic, when kids were out of school, the statistics say that their reading levels really tanked. So can you kind of unpack that for our listeners? Because right now our communities are, are suffering, so to speak. We were already not doing as well on the standardized tests, but now that we've had that pandemic, it's like we've taken a lot of steps back. Um, and I think that reading is really at the fundamental level of really helping our youth excel in many different subjects, just like you spoke of, because reading is really at the foundation of every academic subject in school. So can you kind of unpack that just a little bit for us so that we can understand how integral reading is to success? Sure. So uh, to speak to the pandemic, it is very difficult to teach online in general. And I am a middle school teacher um, and I also work with high school students. My school is grades five through 12. So um, I'm not, I was not teaching the foundational skills to um, children who, just, I know when you're young, you require a lot of engagement. Um, I think as they get older, you know, you can kind of give them assignments, talk them and walk them through assignments. But the younger ones, they're used to being very multi-sensory, hands-on, uh, and that's just hard to do virtually. And so across all demographics, there it was difficult to teach children literacy skills virtually. Um, so we're seeing that across all demographics, there has been a dip in reading abilities and skills. I think that in communities where there are uh, resources that are not as readily available, we see uh, these communities being impacted even further. Um, I think the other thing, interestingly, that came out during the pandemic was parents had the opportunity to see how children were learning how to read. And all schools were not teaching phonics. And so, um, a, you know, not necessarily teaching foundational skills and B, not being in person contributes greatly to why students' reading skills have, have dipped over the past uh, three or four years or so. Um, parents started finding out that their children were not learning phonics, but rather learning to read through the whole language uh, method. And this actually sparked some pushback and uh, there was a podcast called Sold a Story that came out during that time. And it revealed that, you know, we've been teaching literacy 
across the board incorrectly for about the past 20 years. So there are a lot of things being put in place now. Um, it has not touched every school, obviously, but there's just a big shift in how we approach literacy. And I think a big part of it had to do with um, parents being exposed to how their children were learning to read. Um, and then, you know, parents working while their child is in class learning and the supports that a teacher in person could provide were very difficult for parents to do. So I think that contributed to it as well. Um, and so we are seeing, it's interesting because I, as a reading specialist, my focus is to develop literacy skills. I think it's great that we have things like graphic novels and audiobooks because those are different ways that young people can access information. And I do believe in like the variety um, of ways, right? That said, I think we've become reliant on those things. So now uh, we are having poor reading scores and students struggling to read in class. And so our solution, particularly in middle school is well, just give the audiobook, or let's do more books with pictures and images. So I just think that until we can have some serious conversations about what, as they say, the science of reading is, or you know, research-based methods of teaching reading, then we're going to continue to have the issues we have today. Wow. What you shared was fantastic that in that you've kind of broken down the barriers that existed in different demographics. And I think it really spoke to what some parents have been kind of feeling. Some parents say, oh, well, phonics is the best way and the only way. And, you know, there are different schools of thought about how to teach a child. And so I think it's a good thing for parents to be engaged and know what's happening, but I think there are times when you have to have different approaches to teach children because all children aren't the same. And that means that our methods of teaching can't all be the same. So I know that you are a reading specialist. What specific techniques or methods do you employ in your workbook to effectively help youth who struggle with reading? So my workbook is really designed for teachers and parents to learn the foundations of language in order to best support learners in learning to read. I mean, when we talk about the very foundation of reading, I know that there is a huge debate between phonics and whole language and things of that nature. Um, but I also recognize like there is um, a systematic approach to which children learn to read. And so they build sight word knowledge, but from that sight word knowledge, they learn to decode words. So for example, they learn the sight word cat, but then they learn that not just the alphabet and the letter names, but they learn the sounds. They learn that C can say K and A can say A and T can say T. And then they learn to blend that. And they start off with you know CVC words, which are consonant, vowel, consonant, short vowel sound words. They build up to long vowel, pat long vowel patterns, um, diphthongs like oi, oi, and oy, or aw, au, and aw. They build then up to identifying uh, different syllable types. So is it an open, is it a closed syllable, is it an R-influenced syllable? 
Then they build up to identifying prefixes, roots, and suffixes to be able to not only decode a word, but also to be able to define words that may be unknown to them without utilizing a dictionary. So my book is really centered around teaching, again, educators and families how language works so that they can then teach all of the uh, orthographic pieces of information that children need to learn um, so that they can decode words. And, uh, you know, I, as a reading specialist, that is one of my primary areas of concern because particularly in middle school, uh, that is not what teachers are focused on, right? They are really focused on comprehension, uh, vocabulary and passage comprehension. Even in that, uh, there's a method and a way, there's research that that indicates how to teach those things as well. So I've begun you know, looking more into that and working with teachers on the proper uh, methods of teaching comprehension strategies. But because I know there's more of an emphasis on that, in secondary schools, I put the emphasis on um, like word reading and word decoding. And so that's what my book can uh, do to assist people with reading. Um, I'd also say, because I work with a lot of struggling readers, my, and this just may be my philosophy as a teacher, I know everything can't be fun, but I do think when you have children who are struggling with something, you know, you have to make it as engaging as possible. And so I, I just try to be very mindful of like the student's comfort level. It's very hard to be 12 years old and reading at like a second grade reading level, you know? So you have to be sensitive to that and create and foster an environment where children will take the risk to try to read something. Um, I definitely think it's important that you have books that are engaging and relevant. So, um, you know, I myself love to read books by Black authors, uh, but also authors from many different cultures um, and many different nationalities. You know, I think it's important to that books be, as they say, um, a window and a mirror and a sliding glass door. Um, so I, I'm pretty intentional about the things that I choose students to read as well. Um, and I like to know what they're interested in, and I want the text that I choose to reflect their interests as well. So I think all of those um, methods and techniques help me to build strong readers. Awesome. So you have taken your book a step further. You don't only have a book, you also have a show. And so I know that you mentioned that you teach middle schoolers. And like you said, no middle schooler wants to be kind of singled out and made to feel like they don't know what the other children know. And so you've kind of made that, you've taken down the guard and have made them feel comfortable. Can you kind of um, talk about your show, but also share some fun ways, like actual techniques and tangible things that you do to really make it fun and get kids interested in reading, no matter what age they are, because no kid wants to feel ashamed of their reading level, just like you talked about. So how are you doing this? So my show, uh, The Etymology Rules Show, I started it um, just because I really want young people to get excited about words. Um, one of the things I say about my book is I want 
adults to be word connoisseurs so that they can help children build word consciousness. And that's just them having an awareness and an interest uh, in, in words, um, their meanings and, you know, the way they're spelled. So I get a lot of kids who ask me, why is, why is dumb spelled with a B? Or, you know, why does ballet end in E-T? Um, but it doesn't sound like what in and so those kind of questions indicate that children are really just interested in language. Um, and etymology can help to answer many of those questions. So I wanted to foster that word consciousness in young children. And so that's why we started the etymology rule show. Um, fun fact, the sidekick Ori is my goddaughter, and she is just um a ball of energy. She's so theatrical. And so this is just a really nice outlet for her to be able to um, use those uh, voiceover skills that she's developing. And she learns new words while we read the script. She started, she is turning six in a couple of weeks, um, but she has started trying to like read the script herself because her mom um, will give her lines and then she reads them back. And so now a couple of times, like she's read lines all by herself. And so not only is it uh, a way to expose young people to words and develop their word consciousness, but now I'm seeing my goddaughter build her interest in language and build her literacy skills. So um, that was just the impetus really to, to share word knowledge to people at a young age, get them interested in words and, um, expose them to etymology because what five-year-olds know about etymology, but now, you know, my goddaughter is saying etymology, like it's nothing. And she's familiar with what it is. Um, in terms of methods. So I, there's a couple of things that my students, um, I teach fifth and seventh grade this year. I've done fifth, sixth, and seventh in the past. This year, just fifth and seventh. One of the things that they love is a good reader's theater. It's just, you know, you take a story and you have a script version of it and they get so into it. They love to do the voices. Um, sometimes I let them get up and act it out, but sometimes that's too much. So sometimes we're just in our seats, but they love it. And I think it's a way for them to kind of like my goddaughter, who is wildly creative. It's a way for these young people to engage in literacy, but in a more creative way. Um, and what they... I do explain this to them, but what they don't necessarily always think about is that it also helps to build fluency skills. Um, being, you have to read orally, right, to build those skills. And I don't think, especially in middle school, students always have that opportunity because by third grade, we're encouraging students to whisper read and then to become silent readers. But if you are a student that has some reading difficulties, you need to continue building those oral skills. So we do a lot of reader's theater. Um, I'll do like a sight word activity where I tell them you have to beat the clock. So I give them a list of sight words and they have to, as a class, read a certain number in 60 seconds. And so they're always trying to like get to the to the higher level. So, oh, we did 50 this time. We can do 60 next time. We can do 75 next time. Um, so, and that helps other students who may have difficulty with some of those words. Now they're hearing somebody else read it and the repetitive nature of it as well is very helpful. Um, and I do a lot of word decoding. And so 
Um, there are so many programs out here that people can use. Um, Linda Mood Bell is a pretty popular one out here. Uh, Wilson Reading Program, the Orton Gillingham Program. And so I use many pieces of all of these programs. One that I love from Orton Gillingham is how they do word decoding. And so um, they'll like label the vowels and then the consonants. And then there's like a, a format. So you may have a VCCV word. That's a word where the first syllable is closed. Like an example of that might be catnip because cat is a closed um, syllable. And there's two consonants, the T and the, the N, and then you have the A and the I. Um, so when you're labeling all that, you know where to divide the word. And so I've had students um, like race each other and see who can decode the most words in a given time period. I think they love competition. Anytime I make something like a challenge, they're all game for it. Um, I remember last year before last, we ended so with one of my classes, um, it's called Astra, uh, Achieving Success Through Reading and Analysis. By the end of the year, uh, they had heard etymology, etymology from me so much and we've done so many word decoding activities and origin of words. Uh, we had a, a presentation. They had to present on a certain number of words. And as a reward, we all went to Planet Word, which is one of my favorite museums in DC, uh, where you could just engage in a lot of word activities from learning different languages, understanding, um, understanding comedy through language, advertisement through language, et cetera. Um, so I think just things that are competitive, things that are games, things that are systematic, because children want to know, like, how do I do this? What's the format? Um, things that are hands-on and things that like create memories, I think is what I have done in my class. Oh, incredible. I am super excited about what you shared. And it sounds like you and Ori are a dynamic duo. And it sounds like any child who is watching your show can get a sense of joy from learning about et etymology. Now, I want to kind of um, backtrack just a little bit because we're using the word etymology, but we haven't defined it for the audience and we cannot assume that everybody knows what etymology means. So if you can define it for us. That would be great. Sure. So etymology is the study of the origin of words, and it comes from the two Greek parts, uh, ology, which we hear in so many words like psychology, biology, anthropology, etc. And it means the study of, and then etymon is true in Greek. And so it's the truest sense of what a word means. That is, when we break it down to what from where it what it is excuse me what it is used as today and then trace it back to how it was originally used um that's studying the etymology of a word awesome awesome so hearing that little kids um just all ages are really getting excited about words is definitely something that i love and so i'm hearing about these great activities that you're doing with your students. And I'm sure you have some success stories to talk about how that's just transformed your classrooms and how the students are blossoming with their reading. I do. Um, so one story, and actually 
another teacher told me this, but I had a student starting in fifth grade and he was in my class through seventh grade. And then he went on to the high school side of our, of our school. And a high school teacher came back and said, you know, such and such student said that before he came to your class, he really didn't know how to sound words out. He didn't know how to read fluently. You know, a lot of times kids will, they'll know like little words, sight words, or they'll know words that they just kind of see over and over that they've memorized. And then they'll guess when they get to words that they don't know. Cause they just want to keep reading fluently. They don't want to have to stop um, and use their uh, cognitive, co their, they, they don't want to use cognition to break the word down because they're using all their cognition to make meaning of the text. And so if they can fill in that unknown word with something that still makes sense, they're just going to keep reading. I've, I see it all the time. And so this student was a reader like that until you know I taught him how to break words down. Now it's less taxing. Um, you know, he's practiced enough to where he can chunk the words as he gets to them. And for him to share that with another teacher, um, you know, years after he has left my class was really uh, powerful for me. I have a couple students who are dyslexic. Uh, I have quite a few students who are dyslexic, but some who are significantly dyslexic. And so it had them behind, um, again, about second grade reading level when I met them in fifth grade. And so just working with them over time, I've seen them raise their reading ability and they can now read on grade level. Um, again, that just is really touching to me because that's the whole point of the work that I'm doing. And you know, there are some kids who take a little longer, they, meet, they need more time on task. And that's really unfortunate because schools do not, especially when you get to secondary schools, they do not really provide the time for that. So, you know, I have students who are reading several years below grade level, but they have to go to English and history and science and Latin and theater. And we're like, but what about just the foundational skills? So that's one challenge that I'm facing. But when I work with the students consistently over time, I see them grow. And I just wish that like some of the students I had in the past, that I was able to work with um, certain students nowadays and and have more time because I know that it can be successful. I'm like I always tell people, you know, I'm a I'm a fairly confident person. There's some things that I am a little shaky on, and I don't know. But when it comes to like reading and teaching kids to read, I know I can do it. And I just wish that you know we as a society prioritize that because I know the things that I've learned and have put in practice work. You know, it's amazing to hear about those transformative stories, but I wanted to kind of talk about our move to a digital society. You kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. We have kids that aren't necessarily reading proficiently, but they can really utilize different digital devices very quickly. And we're seeing that kind of replace the traditional books can you kind of give parents an advice advice about you know how to help their kids have a healthy balance with digital resources and also still love books? Sure. Um, the first thing I would say is that you know 
reading because of the the growth in technology there is a whole field of study that's just focused on digital literacy um an example would be knowing how to distinguish between a credible website and not um there was a study done on this and um the numbers were pretty shocking that students couldn't tell the difference between um, a sponsored ad and a credible website to get to get information. Um, so teaching them how to think critically about a digital text would be the first start. Um, also, I think that it's very easy to get distracted when you do things digitally. Like, you know, people are always scrolling and um, we don't spend a lot of time reading things if it's online because we just we, we kind of skim it and then scroll. Um, so teaching students, you have to chunk text and be an active reader, regardless of whether it's online or it's in a book is really critical. And you have a lot of hyperlinks sometimes in different pat articles, like teaching children how to utilize those without again, kind of getting distracted, as they say, going into a rabbit hole. I know I've done that myself, reading something. I see hyperlink, so I click that, and I'm reading something else, and I'm reading something else, and I'm like, what was I reading to begin with? So like training students up on that is uh, important as well. As far as, um, I think it's about balance. It's about balance. So people have um, days or parts of their day where they say, like, we're limiting screen time. In fact, my school had a mission a couple years ago to, to help students limit their screen time. And so uh, they were incentivizing it. They were like, it's two, every Tuesday, you know, we're, we're not on screens unless you have an assignment that you have to do. Um, but for the most part, you know, no screens. And if, uh, I guess parents had to sign off on this. And if a student did it all summer long, then they got some kind of monetary reward. So, I mean, it's unfortunate, but they end up having to incentivize like not being on the screens because everybody has access to 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 um, phones and like all of our students have Chromebooks now. So, uh, you know, you have to, uh, unfortunately, you have to make it equally attractive to not be on the screens. I think having conversations with students as well, um, especially older students, just explaining to them why it's so important to limit their screen time. Again, something that we could read about. I always like to tell students, um, you know, you don't believe what I'm saying, I bet you I can find an article about it and we can read it, we can dissect it. I'm also a debate coach, so I'm very open to debate, but you have to, you have to be able to make a sound argument. And in order to that, in order to do that, you need to have evidence, which you have to read. So it all comes back to um, just being able to be a critical reader. I think that helps when you have older students and them understanding why they need to take time away from the screens. There's something that came to mind while you were speaking, and that sometimes in our community, we have parents who may know that their kids have are having struggles they may not be able to identify it as dyslexia they may not know exactly what's going on 
what should parents do when they recognize their child has struggles, even if they may be hesitant to um, get them a diagnosis? Because I think sometimes we have certain people in the community that say, oh, they're always trying to label my kids. But there are occasions where getting the proper diagnosis actually will help your child succeed because they can get the one-on-one -on -one help or the special help that you know may help them learn in a different way. They just have a learning difference, but it should be identified so that they can get that special one-on-one -on -one time that they need. So because I also am a special educator by trade, I completely understand um there's like under there's over identifying especially of black boys there's also under identifying and I think that's really what you're speaking to uh, and I can understand the hesitation you don't want to put somebody in a box with a label I would say though especially if you're in a public school setting the for the most part it's very difficult to get the supports that your student that your child is going to need if they have that level of need um, without the IEP, without being identified as dyslexic. dyslexic. Uh, an example is I have a student who is reading on a second grade level. I have another student who's reading on a pre-K level and they're both in middle school. The student who's reading on a pre-K level, because they've been identified with a reading disability and a learning disability, they actually get to be pulled from class uh, at this point, four days a week. The other student does not have that opportunity. And resources in the school building are kind of, are given based on who has certain needs and that are documented. For example, if you have an IEP um, or you have a, a documented disability, then there is extra funding that is allocated to schools to be able to pay for tutors, to be, to be able to pay for people to come and pull students out and give them that intervention, um, the intervention that they need. So while I can understand the hesitancy, if you are in a school, if you're in a public school, this is really the system that is in place. And so you have to weigh out, you know, do I want to preserve I think what people are trying to do when they don't want to identify students is, you know, you're you're speaking to the students' sense of self-worth, their confidence. Um, and so you want to weigh out, like I want to preserve their confidence and how they feel about themselves. And I think that the confidence will come once they have the skill. And we live in a world where um it's just becoming more and more people are embracing having different learning difficulties or neurodivergency is something that we hear a lot more of. Um, somebody was talking to me the other day, they said, you know, and this is somebody who's um, about almost 50. And they were like, you know, I identify as neuro neurodivergent. And I always knew when I was younger, something was different, but now we have language to talk about these things. And I think they, it, it, they feel validated now, like, no, wasn't that I was not smart. It was just, I learned in a different way. So I think framing how we frame these discussions about being dyslexic is really important. Um, dyslexic children are my favorite children to teach 
by far. I mean, they're amazing. They struggle with oral reading. They struggle with decoding. But a lot of students, not all, but a lot of students who are dyslexic, their strength is in comprehension. They can understand things and think about things on a level that other students just cannot access as easily. So, you know, I like to frame things as gifts and strengths and growth areas. And I think that is more important to do than just kind of try to stay away from the label. Um, because then again, this is purely in a public school setting, you're not gonna get the, the things that you need as easily. And there are some students who I've worked with who are not identified, um, but their parents also uh, spend a lot of money for them to get the the one-on-one -on -one instruction that they could get in school um, if they were identified as dyslexic. So um, you just have to make some choices, but all these choices have to, should result in the student getting the skill, developing the skill. That's the bottom line um, because that will build their confidence in the long run. Yes, I'm so glad that you just gave us a full circle picture of your experience and how you brought out about dyslexia, but also the gifts, because I think that all children possess gifts. And often we have to kind of slow our pace to observe them to really see, well, where do their strengths lie? You know, because learning differences are real, we just sometimes have to decode what is before us and what they're experiencing. So I feel like we've just really just kind of scratched the surface of this thing. But yes, you are the author of Etymology Rules, Back to Basics, and you're the creator of the Etymology Rules show. What future plans do you have for expanding your impact on literacy education? And are you coming up with any new projects or, or initiatives that our listeners should look forward to? Yes. So I currently tutor outside of school. Um, I have I have quite a few clients and the client list is growing and it's a limited amount of time that I have because I, I do it after school. And so I am working to build opportunities for people to receive this literacy um, intervention by training people. So um, I've already, I currently work with two people who I've trained in how to teach literacy and do literacy intervention, um, but I would like to train more people. So I'm currently in talks with a local university um, so that we can start, start some type of Saturday program. Um, and that will be for the students who don't have the benefit of having me throughout the week um, for the for the one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Um, I and I actually like tutoring in groups because it's more fun for the students. So um, that's something I'm working on. Just the opportunity for Saturday school uh, small group literacy intervention and teaching others so that they could be a part of that. Um, I'm also in talks with um, an out-of-school organization that um, it's, a, it's a program that does work with students around dance um, and athletics, I guess dance being a type of athletic, uh, but they are seeking a reading program because they notice that a lot of students have some difficulties. Um, and this would be in Ward 7 and 8 in DC, which 
Um, you know, I used to teach at Anacostia and that is just near and dear to my heart, being able to support the community, being able to support young black learners. Um, so those are two things that I'm working on. And uh, I have a website, which is etymologyrules.com. And so as those things come to fruition, you can check them out on my website. Oh, that's oh, terrific. It sounds really incredible. Before we um, just really wind down, I have one more question. I know we've talked about our struggling readers. What if there is some families who say, hey, I noticed that my child really excels at reading. They're scoring off the charts. What do I do for them to make sure they exceed their, you know, what their classroom is doing? You want your kids to reach their potential, but sometimes some things can be holding them back. What do you say for the kid who's already showed they can excel at reading? How do you push them further? So I think it's thinking about how do we make reading a real world application skill for them? For me as a kid, because I was a strong reader at a young age um, and I was, I was like a very critical thinker. Um, and so my mom told me I should be a lawyer and that I should be a debater. And so that's what I did. I debated when I was in high school, which caused me to have to read a great deal. And like, it challenged me beyond what I was learning in my classes. Um, and then, like I said, that competitive nature um, uh, that I have as, as a lot of kids do. Um, so that was just like a way that I could take my voracious reading and like apply it to something that was extracurricular. We have so many different uh, technological ways to be creative. Things like, um, I always wanna see students who read books that they love do like book talks. You know, you could do a book trailer, you could do a book review. This can be digitally done. This can be done, you know, using artist, art, artistic methods. I just think blending your, your reading skills with other things that you may be good at or that you might be interested in. Um, some students are very much uh, the type of students who are hands-on and so they can read something and it teach them how to make something or build something. Uh, I've seen students, I've seen students like take apart computers and put them back together and utilizing reading as a way to do that. So I would just say to those who are already excelling, pushing students to apply reading in a real world way, because think about ourselves as adults, how do we use literacy? That's what we wanna push. If you're already strong at reading, now I wanna push you to utilize it in um, a meaningful way. Oh, this was such a joy to just hear you talk about reading is definitely something that I love and something that my whole family enjoys. So as we wrap up, can you remind our listeners where they can learn more about your programs, where they can connect with you, how they, like if they are in the area, how they can get in touch with you. If you could share that information with us, I would appreciate it. Sure. So I'm on all social media platforms at Etymology Rules. Um, I also have a website, as I mentioned, etymologyrules.com. And if anybody is interested in connecting, you can email me. Uh, my email address is etymologyrules at gmail.com. And I love, love, love having conversations about literacy. So please reach out if you have 
any questions or thoughts or even people who are seeking to um, maybe implement some kind of literacy program with their own community. I love consulting on those type of things. So yes, please reach out. Wonderful. Thank you again, Brittany. And thank you to the listeners for joining us on this episode of the Cleverly Changing Podcast. Until next time, keep learning and exploring the world of education. cleverlychanging.com and click on the shop tab to place your order.